You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I read a story several years ago about a, a man who was a farmer, and uh, he and his son ran a farm together. <clears throat> and the son got old enough to go off to agricultural college, and so off went the son for a couple of years, and he came back and. And, and, and as he returned, he then began resuming his responsibilities with his father on the farm. And, and they'd be in the barn doing something. And, and his son would say to his dad, uh, Dad, you know, we learned, we learned this. And he'd share an idea of something that related to the apparatus and the barn and things. He'd be out in the fields among the crops. And, and the son would say to the father, you know, Dad, you know, one course taught us about this. And he'd share about, his, about the crops and that with, with his dad. And they'd be inside around the supper table and and the son would bring out a textbook from one of the courses and he'd say dad i want you to know this is something i learned at college and finally after a couple of weeks of this the father was getting a little bit tired of it and weary and and so he just paused his son in the middle and with all respect he just said this to his son he said son i don't need your advice and i don't need to hear more about your courses and i don't need to read your books because I already know how to farm ten times better than I'm doing right now. <laughs> you know something? That, that illustrates a universal principle that applies to even our walk of faith in God. It applies to us as believers because, you know, if someone were to ask you right now about things, you would probably be able to say, I already know how to live the life of obedience and faith in Jesus Christ ten times better than I'm actually living right now. Right? Amen? It happens, doesn't it? We, we've got all kinds of stuff up here. We know so much, but we don't necessarily know how to live it out and the power to do so. Some of you read several years ago the book by Robert Fulgham. All I really needed to know I learned in kindergarten. In the preface he says, most of what I really need to know about how to live, what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. Here are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt someone. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Live a balanced life. Take a nap. When you go out in the world, watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. There it is. (laughs) Amen. And you know what? In in spiritual kindergarten, you know, when we first took our baby steps as baby infants in Jesus Christ, when whether it was when we were young or when we were old or whatever it was that we came to know Christ, you learned a lot in spiritual kindergarten and you probably didn't learn as much since then as you learned in that period of time. You know how to live a, a life that pleases God. You know, this is a theme that I've just touched on. This is a theme that James is all over. James is writing a group of people about some very common sense understanding things about living for God. And he is just reminding them of things they already know. So, as we follow through in the book of James, we're going to do the same thing. For wisdom is not proven in knowing something in the head, but in actually letting it 
trickle down into the way you live your life. I hope you're reading the book of James this summer. Um, it takes 20 minutes to read it out loud together. You know, it's it, it, not hard to do. I did it with someone this week. 20 minutes, read it out loud together, take turns. It's a, it's a great opportunity to hear the word of God read. That's how the original listeners of this letter would have received it. They heard it read out loud. And it's a simple thing to do. Hope you keep up with the text that we're getting prayed up and preached up on each week. Just keep up to it. You can see what's being preached next week in the bulletin every week. And uh, Pastor Doug's going to be leading us through a lot of it. I'll be sharing some. We've got Azar sharing, Steve, Chris, Mark. We're going to have a, a wonderful buffet of roast preacher this summer. And uh, I, I trust that you're going to be built up because the Word of God becomes incarnate when preachers take the Word of God and, and work it through. These guys have been working through their text that they're going to share with you this summer uh, already. They've been working it through. And I want you to know, I'm delighted when I come back from a vacation or from a mission trip and I listen to the sermons and I get together with the guys sometimes. I love it. We, got, we are so blessed. I used to be in a church where if I ever went away, I had to get some other pastor or other preacher to come and preach for me in my place. You know, I could be away for a long time and never run out of preachers here. Praise God. You know, and some of you maybe even haven't identified yourselves yet. That's a good thing. I think that's part of my equipping place in this church family. So I want you to know that's a blessing. Mark Twain once said that it's not the parts in the Bible that he did not understand that bother him most, but the parts in the Bible that he did understand that bother him most. And today we're going to look at a part of the Bible that everyone understands. Nobody's foreign to this subject and this understanding. It has to do with treating all people equally. Showing no bias, no prejudice, no partiality to any individuals based on race or ethnicity, language or education, status or economics, age or sex, appearance or dress, or any other distinguishing social factor. The people that James writes to already knew this, but they needed to be reminded. Before we look at it, I'd like you to turn in your uh, Bible to James, and we're going to... Just notice that in James chapter 1, which we've already discussed, James has already laid the foundation for what he's going to be talking about in chapter 2. He's talked in verses 22 and following about not just being hearers or knowers of the word, but being doers of the word. And he gives shape to that and application to that at the end of chapter 1 by mentioning two groups of people who were among the poor in the society that James was writing to, and that were wid- those were widows and orphans. And uh, he says that a, a, a real kind of worship or religion that is pure and faultless is to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And I think that's his segue to get into what he now talks about in chapter 2 and beginning with verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 1 to 13 with me. And if you're able to stand, I'd invite you to stand now to hear God's word. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing the clothes and say, fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into courts? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So therefore speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God bless his word. You may be seated. I'd like to study this passage by looking at three laws that it highlights. Three laws that James speaks of in this passage of scripture. One is the law of no favoritism. The second is the law called the royal law of love. And the third law is the law of freedom that has to do with mercy. So let's take a look at these three together. Starting with the law of no partiality, no favoritism allowed. The word that is used for favoritism in the New International Version translation in verse two, verse 1 contains two ideas. It's a compound word in the Greek text. And it, it has the idea of face... And the idea of receive. So to literally show favoritism is to literally receive by face. It means to judge something absolutely by appearances. That's it. Receive by face. The word has to do with uh, an external judgment. Nothing else. John MacArthur makes an interesting observation in further study that he did. He realized that this word is only found in Christian writings and pushed on the matter further. He says that he thinks that perhaps it's because favoritism was such an accepted part of most ancient societies that the word only shows up in Christian writings. Interesting. In fact, is it not true that today favoritism and Showing partiality to certain people is also part of society. There's caste systems, there's class systems, there's economic disparities. There's all kinds of things in different societies around the world that divide people. And even today, whole societies are built on the premise of showing partiality to some. Yet, when we look at Scripture... Even from the beginning, the law of Moses stated very clearly that this was not the way that God wanted his people to behave. In chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, verse 17, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. And he shows no partiality and he accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. 
One of the well-known Latin theologians, Latin American theologians, is named Samuel Escobar. And uh, he writes in a book called The New Global Mission that missions exist because God is a missionary God. God is a missionary God who sends his people to be a blessing to all of humankind. See, it's so simple, isn't it? If you were to sum up the entire theology of the Bible, you could do so with two great big arrows. One is from the heavens down to us on earth. And it's, it's, it's God saying, I want to bless you. And the second arrow would go out horizontally so that you can be a blessing. He began that with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he continued all the way through scripture to say in different words, I want to bless you, my people, not just so that you'll be blessed, but so that you can be a blessing. God's a missionary God, and he wants to make your life a blessing to others. He's got the nations on his heart. That's God. That's the Christian God. That's the God, Jehovah God. That's the God of the Bible. He's got Garden Hill. And he's got the inner city of Winnipeg. He's got Bolivia and India on his heart. He's got the nations, the ethnos on his heart. And when Jesus left us, his last words before he was ascended into heaven, he said, go therefore. And make disciples of all ethnos. All ethnos. Every ethnic group. Some of them are coming to Canada. Praise God, we get to minister to them here. Some of them are, we get to go. And in the process, what God does is what's called global discipleship. He changes us and He changes them. And He makes the body of Christ more like what it's going to look like in Revelation 5. In Revelation 7, gathered around the throne from every tribe and language and people and family group on earth. Are you looking forward to that day? You just finished studying the life of David, uh, the first half of the life of David, sorry. I love that passage in 1 Samuel 16 when Samuel's commissioned by God to go and choose a king for Israel to replace Saul. And he goes and he, he's told to go to the house of Jesse. And uh, he goes and Jesse figures, oh, this is wonderful. He brings out Eliab, his oldest and great, biggest son. And he passes by Samuel and God whispers in his ear, no, that's not the one. And he goes through all seven sons that are in the home. And God says, no, I'm, I haven't chosen. And Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? And he says, well, there's, there's the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. Bring him in. We won't start the feast until he gets here. As soon as the moment David walks into the room, God's spirit says to Samuel, he's the one. Rise. Anoint him. What were the words that God shared in the ear of Samuel? We are given privy to the, the words. They're found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. And God said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected them. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. We don't see hearts. We only see outward appearance. And we often make judgments based on outward appearance. 
The book of Jonah, what an incredible book that is. It's a missionary book, isn't it? God says to his servant Jonah, go, go and preach to the city of Nineveh. That's the enemy. Go, go and preach to them. He didn't want to go. He goes the other way to Tarshish. God has to send a big old fish to get a hold of him. You see, God had to renovate the missionary before he could accomplish the mission. That's what God has to do with us too. He's got you in your little circle of your friends, your, your co-workers, your family, your neighborhood. And God says, go, go. I put you in the neighborhood because I want you to touch them. I want you to love them. I want you to have them over for dinner. I want you to tell them about me. But God has to renovate us. We're resistant. Oh, we don't run the other way like Jonah sometimes, but we don't do anything actively to pursue what God maybe has placed in our mission field. Paul writes in Romans 2.11, God does not show favoritism. In Ephesians 6.9, Paul says that masters, employers, to be careful, be careful, God's eyes are on you. Because he who is both their master and yours is sitting in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Jesus said in John 7, just stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. And so James, in chapter 1, verse 2, the author, James, gives us a suppose. Sets before us a hypothetical situation. He says, suppose a man walks in wearing fine clothes and lots of bling. Literally, the, the term that's translated gold ring is gold-fingered. So you get the idea that maybe there was a ring on every finger. Guy walks in, he's got lots of nice fine clothing, and he's got the, 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 the bling. You know, he's got that. And there's another guy walks in, and he's shabby. Rags for clothing. And in the meeting places of James that he was accustomed to, there's not chairs for everybody, so you poor man, you sit down by my feet. Oh, sir, come, 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 have, have the best seat in the house. Now, we don't do that, do we? When I was preaching in First Baptist Church Thunder Bay one morning, uh, I was pastor there, and uh, I had two sergeants to the police force in the, in the congregation. And, and one of the sergeants was in charge of the tactical force, Scott Smith. And so in the middle of my sermon, I'm preaching away, and down this aisle comes a man that's just off the street. Uh, we were right in the corner of Red River Road in Algoma. We had a lot of street people come in. Some of them stunk terribly, and you'd, you'd see them sit down, and other people would scoot over. <laughs> you know, but here's this guy walking in, and he, he seemed maybe he was mentally ill. I'm not sure. But... Um, so he walks in, he sits right on the front pew right there. And uh, he had his hands in his pockets, and he looked like... I didn't know what was going on either, I just kept on preaching. But then I noticed Scott. Scott got up from his pew over there, and he walked and he sat right behind him. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm in good hands. I got the tactical sergeant right behind him, in case he pulls something on me. You see, police officers have to judge by appearances, don't they? I mean, they're thrown into situations all the time, every day. They have to make judgments based on appearances. It doesn't justify that they would treat people differently based on appearances. But they've got a tough job. 
Because you and I can just walk by most of the people that they can't walk by. They're called to the situation. We need to pray for the Winnipeg Police Services. James is saying that here's a, here's a situation. You've got two men that walk in. One's poor, one's rich. What are you going to do? Could happen to us. What James is identifying is the fact that if we're not careful, we're going to have biases and we're going to have prejudices and they're going to be based on economics. That, that really is central to this passage. It's not, it's not you know, the race issue. James doesn't seem to identify. He does identify rich and poor. He does identify economics. I want you to know economics divide. If you live in a land of la-la and don't understand that, you want to know this on earth today, in this city, in this country, in your neighborhood, economics divide. Talk to the realtors. They'll tell you. But they don't need to be divisive in terms of how we treat people. And James is identifying a very important point here. You know, it's interesting. I was just reading this week a few books that I had read during my studies uh, in, in missionary service and so on. And Leslie Newbegin, a very formal, one of the really good missiologists, uh, he says this. He says, 200 years after the Enlightenment, we live in a world in which millions of people enjoy a standard of material wealth that few kings and queens could have matched back then. <laughs> it's true. We're living on a better plane materially, economically, than many kings and queens two, three, four hundred years ago. David Bosch says this, that as the wealth increased among rich Christians in the West, they increasingly tended to interpret the biblical sayings on poverty metaphorically. Isn't that convenient? Oh, that means poor in spirit. Well, yeah, when Jesus is talking in the Beatitudes, he means poor in spirit. I'm telling you, folks, James is not talking poor in spirit here. James is talking about poverty materially, economically. There's no dancing aside, no denying it here. James is talking about a disparity between rich and poor. And on global standards, we're all sitting rich in this congregation today. In verse 5, James sets forth a statement that is very interesting. It says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? Read that again. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. In 1979, in Mexico City, there was a Roman Catholic conference of bishops. And in that conference of bishops, they had many studies on poverty globally and in Latin America and so on. And there was one of the speakers that coined a phrase that has gotten traction ever since. And it's been written up on and interpreted and debated on. And the phrase came out of passages that are like this passage in James chapter 2 and verse 5. It's through the lens of this kind of a text that they came up with a word, a phrase. 
And the phrase has gotten a lot of controversy and mileage, but the phrase that was given by one of the speakers at this conference in 1979 was that God has a preferential option for the poor. You might want to say, well, doesn't that sound like God is biased then? God doesn't like us as much as the poor people of this world? Those that preached it and taught it, they stand by it. God has a preferential option for the poor. You go through the scripture, they got a lot of scriptural support. Now, I'm not going to take the time, we don't have time to go into the streams of theology. Liberation theology teaches one thing and more moderates are going to go over here and so on. Some of you will be familiar with an evangelical named Ron Sider who simply says this, and today we just suffice it to say this, God, he says, is on the side of the oppressed. And those who claim to be the people of God must be on the same side. Can we all agree on that? (laughs) I mean, that's that's really it. We don't have to discuss God's preferential option for the poor, whether you agree with that statement or not. Great to discuss it over coffee. But boy, I tell you, if, if your heart's beating in the same rhythm as God's heart is beating, then you see a widow, an orphan, an alien... Someone who is hurting, sick, in prison, etc. Jesus is so clear. Your heart's with him. I have a painting here I'd like to show you. That Pat and I bought in Bolivia. And uh, we have a few of them actually. And um, they're, they're a painting that uh, by a Bolivian artist named Eusebio Choque. We never got to meet him, but um, he, he only paints indigenous peoples from the Andes. And I'm sorry if the lighting is not great for you to see it wherever you are, but um, he only paints indigenous peoples of the Andes. And he never paints a face. Every, every painting that I've ever seen of Eusebio Choque has the wonderful Aguayo the chompas and so on, and, and the dark face, just this, this darkness, this vacuum, this emptiness where the faith, face would be. And the whole series kind of came to be called The Faceless Poor. Because you see, that's what, that's what the poor are for, for a good whatever percentage of the world that doesn't have to rub shoulders or look them in the eye. Because of where you live or where you work or what you do, you just you don't have to know the poor. They're just the faceless poor. To me, it's haunting. To me, it's gripping to, to know that that's, that, that faceless poor, this incredible percentage of the world that lives in poverty, that, that God's heart is for them, that maybe he has a preferential option for them. And if he does, we should. So we go to Garden Hill. We're going to see the faceless poor. And Bolivia, we'll see the faceless poor. But the thing that's amazing is now all of a sudden they're going to have a face. Now it's not just being told, oh yeah, in the reserves up north, you know, some two-thirds of that reserve doesn't have water. We hear stories like that. Uh, running water. We hear stories about disease that is curable here. And in Bolivia, people die of it. And we, you know, all of a sudden the face 
is there. It's Maria. Or it's Sean. Or whoever. I think that's what God wants to do. And so, if you're working with some of these places, you're going to meet some of the faceless poor. I'm sure that Mark Hinkleman with Living Bible Explorers knows the faces of some of the poor in the inner city. Maybe some of that go to Nudemick will meet some of them because Camp Nudemick has a program that, that invites people that wouldn't otherwise afford a camp experience. I don't know if we'll have some of those ad- adventures at the Ridge or not, but you know, whenever we get a chance to, we've got we to show the love of God. So that leads to our second point, the law of love commended. The royal law of love quotes the law of Moses. And James says in verse 8 that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you don't, then you're not living by love and you sin. You're showing favoritism. You're breaking the law of God. There's an article I read uh, and... Um, In this, let me just read to you that in the early 17th century, Archbishop Usher of Ireland decided to visit a home of a Presbyterian ministry to see if he had really been living the godliness that he had a reputation for. And he arrived at the pastor's home disguised as a poor beggar. He was welcomed inside where he found that his wife, the pastor's wife, was teaching her children. But uh, she was not sure about this man, and so she asked him some questions, and she asked him, how many commandments are there? And he said, 11. She thought he was an ignorant man and foolish, so she paid no attention to him the rest of the evening, and someone showed him to his room later on. The minister found out that he was the Archbishop of Ireland, and so he uh, said to him, would you preach tomorrow morning in my pulpit? So the next morning, the Archbishop of Ireland got up, clean, shaved, got in, in good clothing and so on. And when the pastor's wife arrived at church, she got up and she saw this beggar in the pulpit preaching. And his sermon was called the 11th commandment. And he quoted from John thirteen thirty four, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you. Love one another as I have loved you. <laughs> and we get, we get caught in that, don't we, sometimes? You judge by appearances. But the law of love, this royal law that verse 8 talks about is a law that says, no, I'm going to put all that aside. I'm going to treat you the way that Jesus treats me. And then finally, the third thing as we conclude is the, this law of mercy, this law of freedom found in verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful for mercy triumphs. Over judgment. You know, the, the law that gives mercy, the law that gives freedom is the law of mercy. We've received incredible mercy. Have you ever been in a situation where you expected judgment from someone and you got mercy? And if you can't answer that question, you, you just have to look at how you treat others and you'll be able, maybe be able to answer it. Because you see, if you've received mercy and you're conscious of it, you want to extend mercy. You know how, how, how freeing it feels. And God says, basically James is saying here that you, you Christians, you've received mercy. You deserve judgment, but you received mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you should be the kind of people that extend that law of freedom everywhere you go, giving mercy. 
to people that maybe don't deserve it. You don't owe anything to that poor beggar, but you can give it because it's within your means. And so God says, do so. We do so by treating all humans with love and respect, regardless of our differences in beliefs or economics or race or, dare I say it, sexual orientation. We do it by not treating people differently because of any of these things. Jesus does not. Jesus says, love. Love people. You don't need to agree with the decisions they've made about their lifestyles. Many are lost. They'll never be found without the love of Christ coming through His people. Apply the law of no favoritism, folks. Apply the law of royal love. Apply the law that brings freedom because wherever mercy triumphs, uh, judgment will be put down. Oh Lord, open our eyes that we may see as you see true reality in the hearts and in the lives of broken people including our own brokenness. Amen.